Welcome to the Off-Duty, On-Duty Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com podcast network. I'm your host, Brian Eastridge. Quick sponsor message, our honorary sponsor again this week is EDC Belt Company. EDC Belt Company, home of the foundation belt, the most comfortable, functional, concealed carry belt on the market. All right, so this is uh, episode three. Episode three, I've got uh, guest host again. Hanny McMood, and let's go ahead and bring him in. You there, Hanny? I'm here, sir. Perfect. So how's your week been? Uh, it's been an easy week, I'm happy to say. That's good. I, I just started back to work today, so I guess it's better than the alternatives. <laughs> and there are many. There are indeed. Yeah, I started back riding the bike and doing the bike patrol thing for another uh, period of indefinite <laughs> or indefinite period of time. So took an extended hiatus there for a couple of weeks to get caught up on, uh, you know, podcast stuff and belt stuff and uh, making sales agreements and, you know, all the business stuff that I, I don't miss and taught a class. And so it's I had a it was like I had to go back to work to take a break from life. <laughs> yeah, but I don't envy you in the heat. I, I don't do well in the heat. I would just absolutely despise being out on a bicycle right now. But well, that's understandable. It's really not so bad. I mean, it's a good uh, it's a good trade off. The heat kind of drains you. And today it was the humidity was really high here, so I can deal with heat. But when the humidity and the heat hits you, it's really man, it really just saps you. And and uh, especially when you you know I I taught the class. Sunday about a week ago and coming off the range and being dehydrated and man, yeah. it's just it's like I can't get ahead on the uh, water bottle so I got a water bottle sitting with me in the studio today that I've been nursing so hopefully stay on top of that oh good but aside from that had a good conversation with Jacob Paulson from concealedcarry.com he was uh it's been about a month ago maybe two months ago now i set in on a one of their virtual web meetings with their employees and we kind of had a a back and forth talk about here i am the cop and you guys are concealed carriers you know what's your what's some of your questions and what's your biggest fear and unanimously unanimously without a doubt almost all of them at the same time said getting shot by the police it was really kind of a startling startling occurrence i was like oh wow you know these guys and they're not your your average yeah yeah say, they're, they're a well-trained bunch yeah they, they all attend training regularly and they're with a multitude of instructors and they're very active putting out video series and stuff and that really was kind of a startling revelation to me to to hear that even guys with that level of training and that level of proficiency that was like their number one fear so our topic tonight's going to be how to not be mistaken for the bad guy again i'm going to i'm going to harness your mental powers because i know you teach a <laughs> what do you call it you you teach an off-duty carry course yeah we, we, we uh teach a class that we call covert carry and I, I i don't know anybody else in the area that's teaching that for law enforcement we developed that class i think probably i think around three years ago maybe two two and a half years ago and and further we an upshot of teaching the week-long farms instructor school and uh, starting about five years ago we came to the conclusion that most officers don't get any training into how to carry off duty they just kind of uh you know learn it kind of like by osmosis you know what watching other officers and 
And unfortunately, that usually leads to the box of crappy holsters right. and so on. So we originally taught it as a uh, like a four-hour block that we added to firearms instructor school. And we did it that way for, for a couple of years, and we still do that. Then we, we added a separate covert carry class because there seemed to be plenty of interest in it. I know as a new policeman 18 years ago, coming from North Carolina, the you know the open carry state and all that, I had a lot of... I would say a, a wider background in concealed carry and, you know, competing in IDPA. And, and I was kind of yeah. on top of the holster game and, and what was new and great back then and all that, all that that entails. Yeah. And I was really surprised at kind of the, the knowledge void that was in police work. And I, I went to my, after I graduated the academy, I went to my local police police supply house there and and their selection of off-duty holsters was atrocious it was really bad and both both of our local ones here i would say that their off-duty holster selection is lacking and it was really kind of startling even to find out the number of officers that weren't carrying off-duty i don't think that's quite as prevalent as it was in the early 2000s but there were a number of cops that just weren't carrying guns off duty and it that to me was kind of a perk of the job you know yeah yeah and uh you know there, there were several people that um that i worked with at the beginning of my career who all, they didn't carry off duty they kind of had two frames of thought on it one of them was be a good witness right okay that that's always great advice but the other one was the classic uh, yeah, you know, you know, I'm not going to need it. So right to some extent, I kind of agree with the statement of of be a good witness. Yeah, in, in certain circumstances, and sure. sometimes it's better to just be the the armed gray man, so to speak, that just kind of yeah. blends in, and before you have to intervene in something. And I think this is this is one of the few areas that there's there's really minor minor differences between an off-duty police officer that's carrying concealed and the, yeah. the, the gun-toting populace that's carrying, you know, legally con- carrying concealed. That That's yeah. one of the places yeah. we have a lot of overlapping concerns and issues. So let's dive right in. Okay. For, for me, you know, my number one concern has always been making sure that I have a flow of information, especially if I'm with someone else that they kind of have a predetermined spiel, so to say, like yeah. if something happens and we're unable to get to safety, their job becomes now you need to relay information to 911. Yeah, I agree. You know, I always tell Trish, who you know very well, um, I, I always tell her, I'm like, you have to clarify what I'm wearing, where I'm at, that I'm armed and, and some generalized details of the situation, but you definitely need to describe that there's an off duty officer wearing this clothing and he's involved in, in something and he needs assistance and he's and reiterate, you know, and, and she even knows my, you know, my badge number and she even knows the kind of gun I carry off work. But as a concealed carrier, that's one place that it could kind of get cloudy because you can't go, well, he's an off duty electrician you know i think uh that they are uh, there are uh, positives and negatives Uh, there's a better way to put it would be there's advantages and there's liabilities right position starting with a person who is a life license to carry a firearm the the downside is that when making that call be it you or somebody else making that call they can't they they, they can't relay quite the quite the same information so, for instance, when we are teaching 
the, the covert carry class, we do teach them like a basic script and use as much of it as is appropriate. So for instance, if you're the person not making the call, you may use terminology that may bring about kind of a different response from the responding officer. And a classic one is, there's a guy with a gun. Right. As opposed to, officer needs assistance. And we teach him to say that. Because any dispatcher will hear that, and it will invoke a certain reaction. And so we have them articulate that to, so we do a, we ba- we do a, a live fire scenario where there are targets and they have to start from a seated position and we let them go on doing whatever they're doing for, you know, somewhere between 50 and 40 seconds, 15 and 40 seconds before we, we initiate it somehow, either by turning of a target or by some kind of yelling or something like that. And they, they respond appropriately. If that response involves gunfire or not, what we teach them to do is if there are people around you and we stage, you know, a couple of people around them and we have them point to one and say, you, sir, dial 911. And we tell them uh, a certain list of things to say, like officer needs assistance. He's, he's asking for backup and medical. He is approximately 50 years of age, uh, uh, bald head, blue jeans, black shirt. And we're in this location. And we, 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 we make them do that. And then something that I think uh, most places would consider just an absolute sin, we, we make them drop their guns. Yeah. Now, we do that safely. We do that to where when at the beginning of the scenario, we give them a limited number of rounds, like three or four rounds. Right. And, and we tell them, you know, we even take away their, you know, their spare ammo or whatever. We tell them, do not reload. And, and so when they, they, their pistol goes to lock back, we call the scenario that the guy's down, now, now start your speech. And then in front of them, we, we make, we make the, a, a special box, you know, kind of like, you know, during three gun matches, how you can yeah, talk to your box. rifle and shotgun in. Yeah. Yeah. We make them one. And so what we do is he tells the first person that that list of things to say. And then if you have a second person, point to that person and say, please go to the front doors, wait for the, wait for the arriving officers and, and bring the, bring them to me. So they know where I am. Yeah. That that's, that's kind of reminiscent of CPR training and AED yep. training that exactly. If you're exactly. And it's like, you do this and you do that. And the classic, exactly. We got it from medical training, which is go out and meet them so they can come exactly right to the point they need to come to. Right. And, and, uh, and tell so, them on the way, Hey, this guy is so-and-so yeah. and he just did this and he's over here waiting for you. Right. Which that really reminds me of, of the AED emergency training where yeah. instead of getting onlookers, you start task focusing people exactly. to get them, not only to get them away from a potential crime scene or a potential medical emergency that we need to move people in because a fire, whatever, yep. people are going to start gathering. You start giving people tasks and take charge, and it changes the dynamic, and it, it allows medical or, or first response first responders to get there a lot faster. As an off-duty officer, though, you you kind of have that, you tell 911 there's an officer needs assistance, right. and it's so-and-so, and he's here. As a concealed carrier, you may not have that option. So I agree. I agree. Let's, let's kind of explore that a little bit. Uh, let me backtrack just a tiny bit. As soon as we have them task that other person to go to the door, about mm-hmm. three seconds later, one of us starts screaming, drop the gun, drop the gun, drop the gun. 
Ooh. And they they instantly just got to release it. Right. And, and, and you think that that's a simple thing. We are so trained to always maintain control. Right. That literally, I've seen guys like kind of point the palm at the ground and like they're wanting to drop it and they're kind of like shaking their hand, but the gun is super glued to their hand. <laughs> the brain is saying drop it. Their hand says, no, never let go. <laughs> and I've seen them shake their hand and they're just not dropping it until their brain kicks in. And so until the first time they actually, you know, put in in their brain that, yeah, there's a time where I'm just going to open up my hand and I'm going to let this thing go. Uh, you, you'd be surprised. And that's why we make them do it twice. Yeah. And that, that was kind of a revelation that you can tell somebody to do something, but if it's really, really counterintuitive, they're not going to do it. That, that was um, kind of an inoculation kind of a thing. And, and guys just shook their head and said, I can't believe I didn't drop it. But... Well, the, uh, the concealed carry front, one of the things, and I've talked to a, a few civilian instructors here that run some uh, like simunition training and scenarios uh-huh. like that. And one of the things, and we can toddle off into the weeds about it a little bit. Uh, one of the things they were saying is, if you've resolved the situation and employed deadly force and the situation is safe, you need to move to cover or move somewhere to get time distance and space or, or time distance and exposure, almost like nuclear biological chemical. You need to limit uh-huh. your exposure to the, to the bad guy that you may have just employed your firearm against and then safely holster your gun somewhere that if that threat reengages, you've got that yeah. time and distance that you can respond to it. And then immediately, once you're safe, start calling the authorities. And that one is that one's so situational, though. I mean, stress inoculation in that is is paramount because who wants yeah. to be the guy trying to with their hand shaking for one, try to holster their gun, and for two, once they do, who's to say that? I mean, we've all seen the dead come back to life. Yeah. <laughs> Right. I mean, I'm sure you've witnessed it. We've seen a million videos on it where yeah. somebody that is clinically has no pulse comes back to life. Yeah, mainly because they're, you know, when, once they've gone horizontal, which helps stabilize their blood pressure, a lot of people who are really, really shot after they lay down, they feel better in about 15 seconds. Right. And <laughs> and it doesn't take that long to re-engage somebody, yeah. especially Absolutely. if there's if bad guy has a firearm. So. Yeah. So I think there's a million and one kind of variations to the scenario and all of the the methodology I've seen laid out by different organizations, there's gaps in all of them. Does that make sense? Uh, like there, yeah. There's just, it, it's more than the 1% gap. It, there's no standardized procedure for how you avoid that. But one I, of the- I agree. Yeah, but go the, ahead. But the thing is, is that if, if you remember what is paramount, which is um, you don't want to get shot by that guy and you don't want to get shot by responding officers. And to be honest, uh, a thing that's often overlooked is you don't want to get shot by another armed person right? Uh, who just enters into this position and uh, perhaps they mean well. You can get shot by anybody. Right. And that if you remember that that is being paramount, then then yeah, there are all kinds of gaps 
and we certainly can't think of even half of them. But I think if you start from that position, it, it, it will it will hold you in good stead. Right. So, you know, the, you know what I said earlier about there's an upside and a downside for each. The upside for people who aren't law enforcement is that you can create as much distance as you can possibly make. And if you are a sufficient distance away and you're keeping an eye on the person and that person comes back to life and if they don't start to engage you, if they're, you know, if they're stumbling off in another direction, you have no reason to, to pick up the chase. No, no reason to pursue it. Yeah. You, ha- you, you have no obligation, thankfully to, to take them into any sort of custody. Right. You, you did your part, which is, you know, to, to save yourself and, and those, those around you and those that you're responsible for. So there's the upside for me is that, that you don't have to maintain some kind of control over that subject. Whereas as officers, we just will. Well, and at that point, we almost have an ethical obligation to attempt it. Absolutely. And, I, and I don't mean just in the, the realm of, of we have to try to handcuff them or take them into physical yeah. custody. But if we've just discharged a firearm and poked holes in a bad guy, we still have the obligation of preservation of human life, even if it's sure. the bad guy we just shot. To use that scenario, if bad guy comes back to life and starts stumbling away and the firearms the firearms not in reach, he's yeah. we would be more apt to go hands-on than, say, the, the, the normal concealed carrying populace. Yeah. And, so to me, it, it, it's a slightly different dynamic. But each each has a little bit of an upside and each has a little bit of downside as to how they're different. Again, if you can back up, get your back to a wall, get distance, which equals time and, and limit your exposure, which is all, you know, a great way to put it. That, that that's, a, that's an advantage that, you know, if you don't have a sworn reason to be there right that minute, take advantage of that. Right. And so I that, had a, that would be the difference for me. Right. I had a, a conversation with uh, – with our old, uh, our old friend, one Larry Vickers, you know, a, a uh, long time ago, we were talking about different things and, you know, just carry setups. What do you, you know, the typical gun guy conversations, yeah. what kind of watch are you wearing? What kind of gun do you carry? <laughs> and what kind of car do you drive? What kind of truck? Just basic general conversation at CCW safe headquarters. And he was kind of remarking about, man, you carry a Beretta 92. You know, I've been carrying a Glock 19. He's like, why do you carry the Beretta? And we, you know, we're with empty guns that are cleared and all that, that they were using for props. We're comparing sizes and like, you know, of, of the pistol and how concealable and different holsters. And I said, you know, if I got tangled up in an active shooter scenario, I want to know that I've got time on board, meaning I've got some ammo and then I've got a gun that I can shoot really proficiently and yeah i and he goes i just want to know that i can make it to the exit door and get my family yeah. there with me and i said well yeah depending scenario dependent that's that's going to be my first course of action and and his his kind of response was like well you know since i don't hold that law enforcement obligation my first priority is me and my family if I heard the shots ring out and we're at the, the door of the mall, Hey, let's go back to the car and get out of here. Yeah. And to me, it was okay. I need to get whoever I'm with safe. And then exactly. I need, I need to start relaying information really quickly. Yeah. And if that means 
I got to run back to my truck and get body armor because there's only one, one or two officers there. And I go, hi, nice to meet you. Or I trained him in, or we know each other or something like that. And I go, I got my yeah. armor. Let's go that. So there's, there's kind of a different perspective there. And that didn't surprise me hearing that from him at all. Yeah. And, and that his mindset in that was, if I'm not immediately engaged in it, then I'm not going to get involved in it unless the situation dictates that I have to. And I yeah. think that's where the big difference between an off-duty law enforcement officer and a concealed carrier, that's probably the biggest line I can draw between the two, if that makes sense. It, it makes absolute sense. But, you know, the thing is, as to what is prudent, you know, that paradigm has changed during our career because, absolutely, um, uh, you know, mass shootings are not a new thing. But they are in terms of the frequency that we see it, as opposed to, um, let's say, 30, 40 years ago. Um, there, there, was, there was mass shootings then, but they, they, they happened every, every few years, and each one of them was famous. Yeah. Now, nowadays, I mean, it, they're not really even remembered unless, you know, it, 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 it it's, uh, 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 you know, obviously the one that happened in Las Vegas is, you know, that one is very unique. But but something like what happened at the uh, Pulse nightclub or the uh, one I believe they had in San Diego where the basically the husband and wife terrorist. Yeah. Um, you know, that's a, that's a large number of people shot. And so it's kind of changed for us that now we, we, we grew up in a, gener- in a law enforcement generation of, uh, of basically responding to active shooters. Right. And I remember that at the beginning of that, in the early 2000s, uh, I remember working with officers that are like, okay, so there's gunfire coming, you know, from this building, and I'm here by myself. I'm not going in. And it, it's not that I'm going to say that they're cowardly or whatever. It just ran contrary to the training and the mindset that they were taught their entire career. Right. With us, we grew up in, in, a, in a different one where, you know, responding fast to an active shooter uh, is very important because shots fired didn't mean that, you know, uh, it was a robbery and maybe some shooting went on and then the guy's going to take off. No, we have to take into account that potentially that this is about shooting. It's just about just killing people. Right. And in which case, you just have to take a big bite of that sandwich and do the best that you can. Right. Sometimes I think the difference, what I wish I could train concealed carriers on would be a, t- a course that did not involve any shooting. It would be, let me tell you how to be a good witness or how to be a, be an asset in that situation. Yeah. Depending on where you're at in that situation. And here in my hometown, Strangely enough, about a week after I'd trained with Ernest Langdon, we had a we had an an incident involved a, a suspect that was armed with a revolver and and some semi automatic and walked into a local restaurant in a rather upper crust blue collar area of town. I would say you uh-huh. know the the average single family home in the one hundred and seventy five plus thousand dollar range by one of our parks there they they have there's a big lake and they have a, a park and and they had a, a rest they have a string of restaurants there and this guy walked into the restaurant unloaded 
luckily nobody was to the best of my knowledge nobody was seriously injured or killed in that or there there may have been one fatality i i the details escape me right now a couple of concealed carriers ended that situation yeah and from the interviews i saw with these guys and stuff both of them said i didn't want to get involved but i didn't know how how far the police were away yeah. And this guy had eye protection and hearing protection on. And the hearing protection is what keyed them in that oh, something wow. is seriously wrong. And one guy was a vet and one guy, a veteran, and, and one guy was uh, had been a, a county deputy or a reserve deputy for some amount of time. And both of them engaged this guy in what I can only describe as, as a brutal gunfight. And both of them were able to, in the heat of that, intense situation identify that they were both there for the same yeah for this for the same reason and both of them when the police showed up put their guns on the ground and started going that guy just shot the restaurant up yeah now, and both of them laid their guns on the pavement they were compliant you know how police work is everybody's getting handcuffed until they don't need yep. to be right they both right. got handcuffed both compliant and the situation fortunately ended right there but there again, that's that that's that situation where you go. This guy has the potential to do further damage, and there's no telling what he's just. Neither one of them were really keyed in on what had just happened, except that people were flooding out of the restaurant, saying this guy's just shot the restaurant up. So both of them kicked into kind of that first responder protector mode, and were able to resolve the situation. The beauty of it was neither one of them were engaged by the police and both of them had the presence of mind to know when the police get here, my role is done. Yeah. And that was one of these incidents that I'm surprised nobody's done a real deep dive on it yet. I, I'm, I may try to at some point, both of these people were concealed carriers. And like you said earlier, you have the potential to be shot by anybody, not just the police. Yeah. And that situation resolved itself probably in the best way that it could have aside from just not happening happening at all but the considerations that those both of those guys had the presence of mind that both of those individuals had under that condition was i would chalk that up to remarkable that that was probably something that may never happen again in history that two guys that had both had prior firearms training Aside yeah. from just a basic concealed carry course, you know, you had a military veteran and you had a county deputy. So there's been a, a, a mass of, of stress inoculation. And yeah. one, they didn't crossfire into each other. Two, they resolved the situation. And three, they didn't get injured by the responding officers. That's almost miraculous as incidents well, think, like that go. I think one of the things that people at large uh, probably are not aware of is Unfortunately, we lose multiple officers every year that are mistakenly shot by other officers. Yeah, yeah. Somewhere, it's somewhere in the country. It happens. It happens in multiples every year. And there are there are things to consider about that that any that we can take lessons from if we carry a badge or we don't carry a badge. And one of the things, in my opinion, that maybe maybe one of the main contributors to that phenomenon is that. With officers, they're used to hearing, you know, drop the gun, drop the gun, drop the gun. And it seems to me, from what I've been able to glean from, you know, some of these shootings, is that it seems like it doesn't kick into that officer's head that they're talking to you. Because 
they're usually in on the drop the gun, drop the gun, drop the gun. And so I don't think that a lot of officers, if they hear the phrase drop the gun and they have their back to somebody, I don't think their brain immediately kicks in that they're talking to, to you, to that person. I think that, you know, under stress, they turn into cop mode. And it's like, yeah, I'm one of the four good guys here now. Right. Because in reality, there's only three known good guys and you're an unknown. Exactly. And invariably, it, you know, it's cliche, but invariably it's that person turns around and basically trying to gain situational awareness. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or signal or wave or, or say something. But in, in those split seconds where decisions are made, uh, all they see is a guy turning with a gun. And, and there's the tragedy. I remember at the beginning of my career, it happened up, if I remember correctly, it was either Massachusetts or Rhode Island. It was one of the two. And uh, they were both state officers. And uh, okay. two officers were dealing with a guy in a parking lot. And the third officer was off duty in the restaurant in the parking lot. And when he saw things going badly in the parking lot, he immediately ran out, drew, and was running up on them yelling like, hey, I'll give you guys a hand. And they both immediately turned and shot. Now, outside of did they respond correctly, it doesn't matter. What matters is they shot and killed another officer, and it turned out that one of the shooters had been in the academy with them. Wow. The idea that you're going to recognize anything, I think, goes out the window. You know, we have an expression for that. We call it, yeah, it may be his fault, but it's your problem. Yeah, it really is. It it may be his fault, but if you're the one that's going to get hurt, it doesn't matter that it's his fault. it's your problem that you got to avoid. One of the things that I think that concealed carriers and law enforcement both, one of the areas I think that, that bridges between is when somebody in a uniform is yelling at you to, to put your gun down, you know, work, we are inundated and, and immersed in range procedure, Absolutely. right? Slide forward, hammer down and holster, yep. right? Or, you know, slide forward, striker down and holster, whatever you want to call it. The administrative range procedures, Larry Vickers in his firearms trainers association safety briefing, he sums that up marvelously. He says, look, there is no firing line in the real world. Yeah. And, and that goes just beyond the realm of safety, but also into the nuances of an incident. If you think about, nobody's going to tell you, unload your gun and holster or make safe or whatever. That, nobody's going to tell you that. Somebody is probably going to be running at you saying, drop the gun, drop the gun, drop the gun. And as police yeah. officers, our instinct is look over my shoulder and make sure the person talking to me is not a bad guy saying, drop it. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And as a concealed sure. carrier, your first response might be to freeze. I, I don't know what to do. So these are all really great deep dive on, on scenario-based stuff. And, and I, I think one of the things to keep in mind, if it's possible, is always try to think of angles. So, mm-hmm. you know, if bad guys at point A, you're at point B, and the doorway is point C, and you're all stacked up in a straight line, when it first goes down, that whatever it is, once you think you have at least some semblance of control over it, and I'm in position B, I don't want to be in a straight line, you know, with my back to the avenue of ingress by responding off. I can move either to the left or to the right, maintain view on him, and I can maintain view of where the cavalry is going to be coming from. Mm-hmm. That is something to keep in mind. Not always available, you know, in a parking lot that's 360 and they could be entering from any side. 
But it is something to kind of keep in mind. I had this conversation with uh, your friend and mine, Steve Moses, a few months ago. And I described to him what we were doing, which was basically holster, if it's appropriate, holster. If it's not, then, um, you know, be prepared to, to just drop it, right? Right. Steve raised a really interesting point. He's like, you know, the, another thing you might want to consider is the response that is kind of in between, which is, Let's say you hear the siren, and you can hear the sirens, and the sirens are now, maybe you even can look over your shoulder, you see that they're maybe 50, 70 yards away, and they're screaming towards you. And he's like, that's a good time to quickly just put it down and put your foot on it and raise your hand. Right. And I thought, oh, okay, that actually does maintain control. It's not going to go skipping across the parking lot. Not that I'm worried about scuffing it, but I've maintained control of it, and I'm not a threat. Exactly. And when and when they pull up, your, your hands are already, you know, at shoulder height. And, you know, you, you have your foot on a firearm and go with whatever they tell you at that point. And that, that's kind of an in-between response that I, I think is pretty bright. Because uh, sometimes, you know, it, it may be hard to reholster. Well, if you can't reholster uh, or, you know, it just doesn't seem prudent at the time, you know, and it seems like maybe I should be holding on to it just a little bit longer because I'm worried about who I've just engaged, he said, well, whenever you think you can, just, just lean down, put it down, put your foot on it, and wait for the command. Right. And I was like, hmm. And thought of that one. Yeah, I, I had heard that one in the past, and yeah. it's funny that, that that came up in a debrief in one of my civilian classes. You know, we were, uh-huh. and, and I don't go off into scenarios. I just try to get people to run the gun and sure. and, and have a foundation to practice from. But one of those scenarios came up and it was like, you know, I don't really want to address that. This is not the, the deal. But they said, and this particular guy happened to be shooting a rather expensive double stacked uh, 2011 mm-hmm. with, with an optic and all that. And I said, the only thing I'm going to say to your point is I hope you're comfortable with that gun hitting the ground. Yeah. Nothing against what you carry. Nothing against your training and you he this guy's been doing quite a bit of training but i said just know that when you hear the command that thing needs to hit the pavement so one i would hope it's drop safe but uh, yeah but to that uh, more to that point it is easier i think for police officers to function in a situation like that where hey maybe it's time for me to holster yeah than it is a concealed carrier unless you've been through a lot of stress inoculation and you've been in situations where you have to do that. And, you know, me carrying a double action, single action gun, I have to take the step of I've got to decock it now and now I've got to holster it and I carry appendix. So you get somebody that isn't trained and hasn't been through stress inoculation to that point, you could run into a bevy of problems uh, even trying to holster the gun if you've never experienced an adrenaline dump like that. so Absolutely. Um, well, well, this is a, a much more, well, I, I hate to say cerebral topic as mm-hmm. opposed to a gear topic, but gear does play a role here. It absolutely think of how many ways, devices, holsters that we see advertised that are meant to be super concealable and so on, but can you reholster? And I think that is often overlooked. Yeah. That is not the be all end all, but it is a consideration. And to be able to simply reholster. So think about 
the all, all the uh, inside the waistband holsters that are on sale on you know for sale at various gun shops that are soft. Right. And as soon as you draw that, there's no there's no way it's going back short of gyrations and or having to point the muzzle at your abdomen so that you can kind of squeak the muzzle into the holster and mm-hmm. then you can holster it. Yeah. And we you always see that coming when when we're teaching covert carry. Inevitably, guys bring holsters like that. Yeah, and, and I, I've seen it. We, we kind of nix it from the beginning, and we tell them why. Yeah, and for me as a as a police officer, it's even in that community the the soft holsters have really. I would say they they've been a detriment now that we know what we're <laughs> now that yeah. we we have a lot of training in that area. But but off topic of the gear. You know, let's bring it back to concealed carriers for a bit. The The availability of training is out there, depending on your budget and, and how dedicated you are to it. And once you get the mechanics of how to make an accurate shot under some degree of d- duress or make multiple accurate shots, reasonably accurate shots under some some form of duress or stress to me i think the best money spent is on sim munitions after that <laughs> keep enough to keep enough in your your tool bag over there to keep yourself proficient with your gun but i kind of think like the next step needs to be we need to get you stress inoculated so when you get the adrenaline dump you can think and the ability to think under stress i think is where Law enforcement officers, even the the brand newest officer that's been in a few scenarios, that's the benefit that they're going to have over the gun-toting populace. Does that make sense? It does. The, the thing, though, is that there are very few people willing to offer some form of simunition and, and the uh, ones to non-law enforcement. That, right, and the ones that do, you really have to be cautious that that doesn't turn very into fun. a paintball war. Exactly. It's not just the danger of, you know, making sure that no, no live rounds can enter into the equation, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. How, how well you script that is, is very important. And, you know, I did a class, I think it was very early this spring. Yeah. And I, and I did it for Palisades and we, well, it actually was a Palisades class and I just happened to be one of the instructors. And yeah, it was. It had scenarios, and we used uh, airsoft. And you know, one of the things you do is you kind of control the number of rounds they have, and you also uh, just beat into their head that if you are hit a couple of times, just this doesn't turn into I'm going to keep taking the pain and I'm going to take you with me because then nobody learns anything, right. and then it turns in, obviously into paintball. So you do have to tightly script it, tightly control it. And the best way to do it is, and that's the reason why there was four of us there, was it, it's best when you have instructors be the bad guys. It is. Because guy, that way you, you can really control how it goes. Yeah. You you can kind of dictate the scenario, Yep. whether it be based on past history or yeah. incident history or whatever, and, and it doesn't turn into airsoft war or paintball yep. war. And, and I completely agree. And I, I've told a lot of people that like once you get the mechanics of, of being able to hold a gun, grip a gun, and make shots on demand, draw from a holster, reload the gun, fix malfunctions, you've got the mechanics of that. You've got a handle on that. To me, the the next thing that, that is in line is we have to start stress inoculation. We have to start making you think. 
And whether yeah. that be in, in even in live fire training, there's a lot of people out there that I can teach them how to shoot the test and how to shoot 90% all the time. And they go practice it and that's what they practice. And I say, man, that's yep. great. You know, that shows a mark of proficiency with your firearm. Now let's get proficiency with, you know, the muscle between your two ears and let's start thinking through scenarios. Even when, even when you are either in pain or under an incredible <laughs> amount of stress, we have to be able to, to make sound decisions rapidly. And that's something there's just very few people in the training world that really, I would say niche on that subject. And for a police officer, you have the benefit that every day you're inundated with having to make decisions under pressure and under yeah. extreme They can be stress. minor, they can be major, whatever they are. And all you points are in between. All the time. Right. And, and you get your brain actually, the neurological pathways in your brain get adapted to that. Yeah more so than the opportunity as a concealed carrier. And I'm not making a slight at concealed carriers at all. That I think is something that is almost irreplaceable in the training circles is having people Um, that are able to convey that, contain it and package it into a digestible format. That's effective. One of the issues with that from a kind of a business point of view is I can tell you that is insurance. And if you are a active working firearms instructor, that is something that you absolutely need to have. You need to have some kind of, uh, of legal coverage right. covering your training. And for a long time, the options were very, very few. Like, I remember for some period of time, there was exactly one company mm-hmm. that you could get it from. I remember that any kind of force on force was explicitly not covered. Yeah. Uh, and that's changed. Uh, there are there are much better options now. And, play, you know, places like CCW Safe that, you know, they, 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 they have very good instructors who, who are actually part of the institution. They're not an, an insurance company, you know, first. And then, you know, so that's something that a lot of instructors have shied away from, not because they didn't have good intentions, but for the longest time, that was something that they just, they would not do for, for people who weren't law enforcement because they just didn't want to take on that liability, especially when your insurance carrier stated specifically, we don't care if it's water guns. You are not doing any kind of force on force. Yeah. That, and that's been a major hindrance. Fortunately, th- th- that's changed now. But you still have to seek out an instructor who, who knows how to do it and is willing to do it. Right. Rallying it back around to, so we've gone into some, some deep deep holes here, but rallying it back around to the concealed carriers that I talk to, their number one fear is being being engaged by a law enforcement officer. And yeah. unfortunately, in those situations, you're really riding the fine line that they are justified in engaging you, right? You know, you have an armed subject with a gun in their hand that's not responding to commands. You're, you're right at the threshold of, of having deadly force applied to you. So let's, let's rally our heads here for the next few minutes and think about some things you can do to like a one, a one thought thing that how can we mitigate that risk? And I'll kick it off. I think the first thing to do is get yourself safely away from the situation. Yeah, I agree. And whether that be holster, whether that be put your gun in the floorboard of your car, 
and start calling 911, but get yourself away from the engagement you were just in and start notifying start notifying the authorities. Yeah. That that I think is a if you have that luxury, man, that that would be my go-to. Even as an off-duty cop, if if I had the ability to come out successful in that in that engagement and then back away a safe distance and get the gun put back in a holster, that's going to be my first that's going to be my first go-to. Yeah. So what what would um, be one of yours? Well, uh, there, there's a couple that that I can think of. The issue, uh, the one that you just mentioned, be, being a great number one. Number two, it to me, it is just try to think in advance of of just the whole idea of the exposure of the handgun, be it uh-huh. pre-fight or post-fight. So if 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 it's not if it's not like I'm sitting in a restaurant and it's literally breaking out in front of me within you know 20 feet, even then. I'm going to give it a, a, a little bit of thought as to is this guy come in and he wants to shoot this one guy who's sleeping with his wife or, or is this, you know, a guy who literally walked in with eye and ear protection with multiple guns Yeah. Th- to think about stuff like that, that do I immediately want to expose pistol or not? Or am I in some kind of location that's hallways and doors and rooms and so on? And I hear gunfire. I am not going to immediately draw. And I know that that raises a risk, but in my mind, I try to think of the exposure of the gun. Just try to limit the exposure of the gun, be it pre or post. Yeah. The neat trick, I grant you, but it is something to consider. And if you think about it, it might save you a little bit of headache and trouble and death. And probably the last thing is to just get it in your mind that to immediately respond to command. Mm-hmm. Just immediately respond to command. And Wilson will happily refinish that 1911 for you yeah. or anybody else. <laughs> right. So let it go. That's... That's been one of my uh, one of the the topics I, I was surprised that came up is what happens to my gun after an incident like that. And yeah. I'm like, dude, it's going to get pitched into an evidence room, and it's probably not going to look the same when it comes back. So if that was the 1911 that your grandpappy carried in World War II, leave it yeah. at home. You know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. And and the, the thing is, is there's no good answer for that because I can not. tell you in Texas it varies broadly. In some cases, it we keep it until uh, the grand jury is done. Yeah. Uh, so it may be it may be a matter of uh, two three months or longer, cases, or, or or much longer. And I've heard of cases where it's shorter, where it appeared that no charges were going to be filed. Yeah, you're going to have to go before the grand jury in case of a you know especially a death. But we've had jurisdictions here that basically took it kept it did firearms testing on it and three weeks later like yeah you can come pick it up it's very strange yeah there's some you know three years later your attorney's still going to be contacting the department saying hey it's done right there's there's no standard answer for that Yeah, there's no standard really so the next thing i would say for a concealed carrier that's that's trying to mitigate that risk because i the risk is always there you and I have both operated in the environment where it there is no such thing as safe. It's yeah. it's risk mitigation. The next thing I would the next thing I would go to would be I want to be the first guy on the phone as soon as I can get safe. And I want to be given my clothing description, how tall yeah. I am, my hair color, if I'm wearing Ray-Bans or you know anything I can do to get that information to the first responders to 
to mitigate yeah, absolutely. their to, to temper their response pre-scene. And I'm I'm talking down to you know I'm wearing Cole Hahn shoes. That was a big thing in the '90s, right? I'm wearing yeah, you, you know that for a dispatcher. <laughs> I'm <laughs> I'm wearing I'm wearing Solomon shoes. I'm wearing this. I'm wearing that. I've got a hat on backwards. It's you know it's a blue ball cap or or whatever it is. I'm going to give them every description. I'm armed. I'm over here. I'm standing next to this car by this store. By here's my GPS coordinates. Please send an officer to me so that I can start the process because this just happened to me. I was the victim of a violent crime. Help. But as soon as I can get myself safe, the next thing I want to do is relay the information to the good guys coming. And it may even be medical aid. Hey, the bad guy was dressed like this. He's laying over here. I'm pretty sure that I shot him. And he's going to need medical aid. So I'm going to start pass as soon as I can get safe. I'm going to start passing information. And I'm sure there's, um, there's an instructor or two or three or 10 out there that have a much more regimented, maybe check the block thing to go through. Yeah. Something that comes to mind, which is it's slightly off topic because it's not necessarily about getting shot or, you know, preventing getting shot. Years and years ago, I, I took uh, Masada U famous 40-hour course. It's changed names over the years. Now, you know, at the time I took it, I think it was called uh, Judicious Use of Deadly Force or something like that. Right. And, you know, the, the thing is, is uh, to his credit, he, he was talking about post-shooting reactions and post-shooting considerations long before other people were, it, you know, to, to people who weren't law enforcement. And right. One of the things that, as I remember from the class, and I believe he still teaches the same basic premise, which is, you know, a lot of people always, you know, give you the advice, like, just don't say anything to the responding officers. Yeah, that's not going to fly. And, 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 but they, they, look, there are attorneys walking around saying that. If you go on YouTube and look up stuff like that, you will get the vast majority of them saying, don't say anything. Right, and I think that's that's a really good topic in and of itself for yeah. for a, for a whole podcast devoted to it on on post post incident post incident procedures or post incident follow up whatever it may yeah. be. But to kind of circling back to you know the average concealed carrier, if I'm God forbid I'm involved in an incident after I get myself safe, it's going to be start relaying information absolutely uh, and as if a police, get in a better position it get, is hopefully get weapon out of sight and then it is start transmitting information right kind of to me in that order if i got to pick a top three and if it's if the responding officers by some miracle of physics happen to be right next door when that all occurs yeah follow all commands to the letter and there's still even risk in that, but but at least you're doing something to better your position. And in the in the military, you know, a fighting position, a foxhole, it was never done. It was never done. You were always improving your position. And I think if you kind of uh, you kind of fixate on, I need to constantly improve my position, meaning cover 
concealment. Okay, the situation's over. I need to I need to get my gun out of sight, secure away from people <laughs> or and away, and away from the view of anybody that's responding to the incident. I need to follow commands. I maybe I need to get on my phone. Maybe I need to have somebody that's there. I need to dictate, "Hey, please get on the phone and tell them what happened. Tell them where I'm at. I'm going to be right over here." Whatever it is, constantly improve your position. That can be everything from cover and concealment all the way to relaying information to post-incident debrief and all points in between. So, so yeah, that, yeah. that that's kind of my t- my two cents. And as a as a law enforcement officer, have your badge and credentials handy. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> that's the biggest thing. And I, I talked to a guy one time that said, "I carry my my." my badge i don't carry it in a wallet because i don't want to have to reach for anything and if i think the point of ingress is going to be behind me i will pin my badge to the back of my shirt or my belt and i'll stand there with my hands up and if the and if the situation is not resolved i'll have my hands up with a gun in my hand i don't but i'm not going to to not identify myself i'm going to do my yep. best to make sure everybody there everybody in the immediate surrounding area knows i'm a policeman and as yep. soon as the as soon as the the smoke clears if there's no first response on scene i'm going to suck it up and start doing first aid and giving people ta- giving witnesses tasks to do things but yeah but yeah that man this has been a this has been a great conversation man this went well, you know, it's a really, uh, it's a really non-glamorous topic. It's not. Because it, like you said, it's all about, there's no winning here. All there is is mitigating. It's a hard topic to teach and it's a hard topic to discuss. It is. And I'm, I'm going to look something up over here from our friends at CCW Safe. On, uh, they have kind of a civilian incident breakdown, I guess you could say, or uh, a kind of a continuum of, post-incident procedures uh-huh. and I'll, I'll, I'll gloss over, over the top of them. If I can get them pulled up here, I had them pulled up earlier in my computer, kind of bit of a hiatus on me there. So let me see if I can um, find it. Oh, here we go. All right, sir. It's avoidance, situational awareness, threat assessment, seek assistance, action, and then deadly force. And that's kind of their, that's kind of their pyramid of how a situation escalates. Yeah. Which I, I think is an invaluable resource. If you go to their website, ccwsafe.com, it's yeah. I think they call it civilian use of force and it's loosely modeled on the police use of force matrix. But yeah, as a civilian, the more informed you are, you know, knowledge is power. And the more informed and the more fluid you are in using some type of guideline, the better off you're going to be post-incident in your ability to recall to, this is what I did. This is what I said. And that is a bit of a plug for CCW safe because we are affiliated and concealed carry.com well, um, affiliated with them. Then, then that sounds like the post-incident might be a, a good conversation for another day. I think it but is. I will, I, will, I will say this is that, People should do, should do should do research on that, and in my opinion, it's not as simple as don't say anything, because no. there is information that is perishable. That if you don't relay it now, it's not gonna 
if you can't point out and say gun bounced under the red car and that guy, that guy, and that guy saw, saw the incident, 20 minutes, that pistol will no longer be there depending on the neighborhood. Exactly. And, uh, and, and those three witnesses will be scattered to the wind if you don't say something. So well, we'll leave it at that. We will. I think, uh, I think we need to revisit the topic and maybe, maybe I can get, uh, CCW safe's critical response coordinator guy named Gary Eastridge. I think you know him. Maybe I can get him on in the future and, and the, the three of us, I could get him in studio and the three of us could, could talk through post incident. Cause I think that's a really, what, what could go wrong if all three of us, well, if we can stay off the topic of like 1911s and <laughs> Browning high powers and uh, H and K, uh, oh the the P sevens, if we can stay away from that, if we can just keep the bird dog pointed on the birds, we'll be fine. And end frame revolver. Oh yes, in frames and and are my personal favorite K frames. I love the action on a K frame, but hey, that's a story for another time. So I'm going to go ahead and. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and kick the music off here and roll us out. Thanks again, Hanny, for another episode. And I think this one is, it is, it has been so inundating with information that we may have to revisit it later. So it has been, and I will uh, talk to you soon. Thanks for joining the off duty on duty podcast part of the concealedcarry.com podcast network i'm brian eastridge the host thanks again to hanny mike mood from texas honorary co-host our sponsor edc belt company the most comfortable functional concealed carry belt on the market we will see you on the next episode the off-duty on-duty podcast is a production of eastridge training and consulting llc